As you're heading out, we are um, continuing our series in the book of Hebrews. And as a reminder, one of the themes that we're just going to keep coming back to and really is going to be a highlight, uh, probably at some level every single week, is that Jesus is better. Jesus is superior to fill in the blank. Anything, really. I mean, I guess if we want to get uh, technical and theological, if he's compared to the other persons of the Trinity, he is equal. But uh, to everything else, he is, he is better. All the things that we're tempted to put our hope in, right? Uh, Jesus is, is better than that. And last week, we looked at the fact that he's, he's better than the angels. And the angels are amazing. That's not something that we typically think about a lot. But um, we talked about how amazing the angels are. And Jesus is, is better than that. And therefore, better than anything that we might imagine. And so we come continuing with that theme here. Even continuing, uh, we see in the first verse, uh, the comparison to angels a, a little bit moving forward. This, this idea that, that Jesus is better. And, and I, one of the things that just happens on Sunday mornings is that we're, we're constantly reorienting ourselves to that reality. Because it's not our default setting. Our default setting is... Uh, is to not think about these kinds of things. It's just not where our minds naturally go. I I have in the past uh, quoted from a commencement speech that David Foster Wallace, an author, gave at Kenyon College. And it's worth looking up. He he, he was not a follower uh, of Jesus, but there was a lot of common grace and a lot of truth that he communicated. And the the quote that I've used before is one where he talks about the fact that we all worship something, Right? I'm not going to use that one, but from that same speech, um, and again, it's, it's worth finding uh, on the interwebs, uh, David Foster Wallace, uh, Kenyon College commencement speech, and he talks about the fact that we have this default setting, and the default setting that we have is to think about uh, things in a fairly judgmental way, so he's laying out this kind of picture for the graduates that they're going to end up in some pretty mundane aspects of life. And he's talking about coming home from work, long day at work, you gotta stop by the grocery store because you don't have any food at home. And you're in there and it's crowded because there are other people doing the same thing. And you face traffic on either side of it. And, and you start to think about people in particular ways. And they're really an obstacle to you getting the things done that you need to do. And they're slow and uh, all of these things. This is our a little bit default setting. And he says, If I choose to think this way in a store and on the freeway, fine, lots of us do, except thinking this way tends to be so easy and automatic that it doesn't have to be a choice. So hear what he's saying there. It's not a choice. That's just where we default. uh, That's our default setting where we go in our minds. It is my natural default setting. It's the automatic way that I experience the boring, frustrating, crowded parts of adult life when I'm operating on the automatic, unconscious belief that I am at the center of the world. And that my immediate needs and feelings are what should determine the world's priorities. Which is our, one, our default setting. And then even more and more so in our current culture, we're being told that this truth, that my immediate needs and feelings are what should determine the world's uh, uh, priorities. We we live in a hyper-individualistic culture. We live in uh, what some have called uh, expressive individualism, that the basis of what is uh, our lives and what should define our lives is the way that we feel at any particular moment. And we come every Sunday to be oriented away from that default setting. And Hebrews is certainly doing that and it is orienting us toward that which is better, Jesus. And Jesus here in this passage is put forward as our 
champion. So the word that I'm going to use, the Greek word here is uh, archagos, and we see it in verse 10. Here it's actually translated founder, but it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder, or the champion, of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus is the founder, the basis, the champion is another way that this Greek word is translated, the champion of our salvation. And there are going to be two points that we're going to see here, that he is the champion and that he is our champion. And I don't know how you think about that word, but I think that Jesus, is, is, it, he defines it a little bit differently in his experience. I, I actually was not familiar with this song, uh, but there's a song called The Champion. You may be familiar with it. It's uh, Carrie Underwood and uh, along with Ludacris. And um, for the older folks, Ludacris is a person. Um, and uh, here, here are some of the lyrics from The Champion. I'll be the last one standing, two hands in the air. I'm a champion. You'll be looking up at me when it's over. I live for the battle. I'm a soldier. Yeah. I'm a fighter like Rocky. Put your flag on your back like Ali. Yeah, I'm the greatest. I'm stronger. Paid my dues. Can't lose. I'm going to own you, I. I've been working my whole life, and now it's do or die. I'm invincible, unbreakable, unstoppable, unshakable. They knock me down, I get up again. I am the champion. You're going to know my name. You can't hurt me now. I can't feel the pain. I was made for this, yeah. I was born to win. I am the champion. I've been waiting my whole life to see my name in lights. And this is the idea that we have of a champion, right? I'm going to defeat the others. They're going to be looking up at me. My name is going to be in lights. And this idea that I'm invincible, unbreakable, unstoppable, unshakable. And here's, we, here's the truth that we all know, right? If we succeed, and if we're a champion in some part of our lives, and we think about the sports champions or the champions in different areas of, of life, um, we know that there's nobody that says, even after experiencing great success, that I am invincible, unbreakable, unstoppable, unshakable. We all experience the fact that we are not as much in control and, uh, and invulnerable as we would like to be, or sometimes like to think that we are. And so we need a champion actually outside of ourselves, and that's what we find in Jesus. Uh, I'm going to pray, and we're going to dive deeper here. Lord, we do pray that you would bring us and fill us with the hope of you, that you are uh, our champion. So meet us here in this time that we might recognize and live in light of the fact that you are better than anything else that we might hope in, whether it be ourselves striving to be our own champion or whether it be in others or something else entirely. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is, first of all, the champion, and then our champion. Again, the two points. Jesus is the champion. There is constantly in Scripture this picture of a cosmic battle, of, a, of what we would call spiritual uh, warfare taking place. And last week, we talked about the existence of angels. And this week, we see this key verse, verse 14, that talks about uh, the, the fact that Jesus destroys the, the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So there are these spiritual forces, angels, the devil, and there's a lot that we don't know about how that works and plays out. And, and we would, as uh, C.S. Lewis says, make a mistake to focus too much on the spiritual world. And we would also make a mistake to not think about it enough. 
So there are lots of questions that I have and lots of answers that I don't have. And yet there is a reality to that there is this cosmic battle going on, that there are spiritual forces at work in the world, angels, demons, and the devil. And Jesus is engaged in that spiritual battle. And uh, we, we see this playing out over the course of Scripture. We see it very early on in Genesis chapter 3 when the devil is present in lying to Adam and Eve, twisting the truth about God and who he is. And, uh, and that there is the promise of essentially battle yet to come. And then we see Jesus' own life. He battles with wits, uh, with Satan in the wilderness as he overcomes that temptation. We see that he... Um, in his ministry is pushing back against the work of the devil and casting out demons and healing the sick and raising people from the dead. Jesus is engaged in this cosmic battle. And we see even here in this passage, he is the one that is in a position to win that very battle. This passage starts with, in verse 6, 7, and 8, a quote from Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. This psalm, Psalm 8, is a reflection on Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, which we call the creation mandate. This is before the fall happens. And God creates them, male and female. And he says, be fruitful and multiply and go and have dominion over the world, over the earth. God has put... Mankind in this position that we have failed to live up to, this vocation that he's given us, that we failed. So we begin to see in verses 8 and 9 a transition from talking about mankind and this position that we've been put in and the recognition that we haven't fulfilled that vocation, turning to Jesus who becomes a man. We're going to see a little bit more about the incarnation, who becomes a man and is able to fulfill that vocation perfectly. And he is able to... Because he is the one who really has all things in subjection to him there in the middle of verse 8. He is the one that for whom and by whom all things exist. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's God himself. He has that kind of power. For whom and by whom all things exist. I mean, that statement in itself is, is really bigger than we can wrap our minds around thinking of all of creation and all of its glory and majesty and, and that which we don't even understand and the stars and galaxies and universes that exist beyond us. And, and the, the picture is that Jesus is the one for whom and by whom all of that was created. That's the picture of who he is. He is absolutely crowned with glory, verse 9, in a way that mankind uh, has, has not been. He is uh, the champion. Again, if we think about champion, we often think about it in uh, terms of the sporting world, right? And one of the conversations that happens regularly now that is uh, fascinating and feels like it's just something that commentators get paid to talk about so that they have jobs is who is the GOAT in any given sport, right? The GOAT is the greatest of all time, right? Who is the GOAT? Is it LeBron James or Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant or maybe you throw somebody else in there or is it uh, Matt Novak? Um, I mean, these are the questions when it comes to basketball, right? Um, you know, who, who is it in the, the different sports? Who is the, actually last night uh, went to um, 
my wife's annual, the, the company's at properties uh, party, and they had the awards for the, um, the goat, the, great, the one who sold the most, right? And they brought a live goat on stage. Uh, Jenny Bliss, uh, one, she owns goats, and her daughter surprised her, showed up with a goat, uh, and the person introducing her introduced her as the goat. And, you know, we have these conversations, right? Who is uh, the greatest of all time in any given area? The, the champion. And, um, and they're all silly conversations, right? And, and as we think about uh, those that accomplish big things, again, we recognize that they're not, they're not actually free from a lot of the brokenness of the world. But so now we're talking cosmic scale, right? Well beyond sports. And I think sports are valuable, but really uh, not going to change the reality of the world in anywhere close to the way that Jesus is interacting and working here. He is the one who comes as the champion and he wins. This is actually the picture we have. He defeats death and the one who has power over death and even the fear of death. Look at verse 14 into 15, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, we're going to talk about how uh, this is important, that he accomplished this through his own death, that he accomplished this by partaking of the same things as mankind, but that he does this to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So by suffering and dying himself, He conquers death and the one who has power over death and he conquers the fear of death. And and he does so, I I do think it's just a little side note here as you're reading through and the questions that might pop up uh, here, this idea that he was made perfect through suffering. So there's not any question. Jesus was perfectly holy. There was nothing wrong with him in any way. The idea that he was made perfect is this uh, word that that he's ordained. He's set aside to this particular role uh, in redemptive history. Uh, and, and we could also think about it as uh, this is where the plan of God is accomplished, is perfected, is, is worked out to completion in Jesus Christ. So, you know, it's a, a little bit of uh, Hannibal from the A-Team. I love it when a plan comes together, when it's perfected. Uh, it, here, there was never any question. Uh, he was going to work that uh, out. It's perfected in Jesus. And what the promise is here is really significant here in verse 14 and 15, that he conquers death. It's interesting that Hebrews doesn't talk about the resurrection explicitly nearly as much as Paul's letters uh, throughout the New Testament. But it, that, that reality, you know, it's a little bit spoiler alert, Jesus rises from the dead. Everybody knows that, right? Like that, that is a part that is central to the story. So to say that he conquers death is a clear recognition that he overcame it by rising from the dead. That's a significant promise that he conquers death and the fear of death. And and we might read this and we think, you know, I'm not really, I I think this is actually more often the case, maybe one in a younger congregation, but two just in our current culture is that death itself is not something that we think about a lot. So maybe you hear this and you hear the fear of death that that enslaved us. I, I, I don't, you know, that doesn't really ring true for me, but hear me for a moment. I think it is. And uh, even when we don't recognize it, it it is there. But 
because we live in this place that has done a pretty good job of separating ourselves from death, that we can avoid even thinking about it. It's just the nature of our current time. So modern medicine means that, that death is pushed off much farther than it has throughout history. But that's just a reality. People, the, the leading causes of death are now more associated with old age than they were through much of history. But there are other ways that we try to avoid it as well. I mean, the fact that uh, death doesn't really take place in the home anymore. It takes place in hospitals and funeral homes. I mean, all that stuff used to happen in the home. And, and, and you know, I, I read that the most common thing was that by the time a child reached adulthood, they had either served as a hospice nurse or they had dug a grave. That was just the, the normal routine of like death was there in front of folks. And we've separated ourselves from it. Even when we are faced with the fact that death happens, we, we become pretty distant from it. So we are mourning this week the loss of Rebecca Overman. We, we, even in the last few years, have been faced with death as a congregation in ways that we haven't been for most of our uh, time as a church, right? Gary and Kelly and folks also connected to Redeemer that many of us know. I mean, it, it's, it's been a little bit remarkable. And yet, even with that reality, and sometimes it comes in front of us in ways that we don't expect. It is a shock because we have pushed it away so much and try not to think about it so much. We avoid thinking about it. And we're able to in many ways. We, uh, just one more way that we avoid death is uh, just the reality of it is our food culture. We, we separated ourselves from the reality of what we eat. What we eat. Even uh, there's a fascinating article from six years ago about diet culture being this attempt to avoid death. Uh, and talks about the fact that even if we're vegetarians, we're taking, there's this mysterious thing happening. We're taking in life as we eat to sustain ourselves so that we don't die. But we certainly do that if we, if we eat meat. We don't think about where it comes from. Like what is pork? What is beef? You know, uh, it, you know these are things that we, we don't, uh, we're able to avoid thinking about that reality. Some of us uh, maybe have had experience hunting, and so you, know, you kill something, you clean it, you eat it. But that's not the norm. That's very, that's very uh, it's more and more unusual, right? But it just means that we don't have to think about this reality because it's uncomfortable. There's a, a, a book I, I recommend called The Slavery of Death, and uh, the writer Richard Beck talks about uh, our avoidance of the reality so that we don't have to think about it uh, and the ways that it plays out in culture. Because ultimately his argument is that even if we don't think about death explicitly, that what we end up with is what he calls death anxiety. And that it plays out in all of the other fears and anxieties that we have. So trying to establish ourselves uh, as happy, meaningful uh, individuals with an identity that has purpose uh, in this world, that all of that ends up being this attempt to avoid the reality of death. So I'm going to read a, a couple of different passages. He quotes from a couple of different authors. It doesn't really uh, matter for the sake of um, what I'm reading. But uh, this is what he says. He says, McGill's argument is that we tend to call success in American culture, what we tend to call success, is often a neurotic delusion, a defense mechanism. 
one that we use to deny the reality of death, both in our lives and in the lives of others. The cultural expectation to be fine is at the root of an ethic of death avoidance. So everything's fine, I'm fine. Every American is thus ingrained with the duty to look well, to seem fine, to exclude from the fabric of his or her normal life any evidence of decay and death and helplessness. We wanna be successful because we don't want our lives to betray the marks of failure or depression, helplessness or sickness. When they're asked how they are, they really can say, fine, fine, I'm fine. This is the expectation that we often build for one another and that we try to create things of meaning uh, in our jobs, in our relationships, so that we don't have to think about death. The hope and belief that the things that man creates in society are of lasting worth and meaning, that they outlive or outshine death and decay, that man and his products count. That's what we're trying so often to do. I'll read this one last quote. We, we're, we're, and so we arrive at the startling, radical, and destabilizing conclusion we're enslaved to the fear of death because the basis of our identities, all the ways that we define ourselves and make meaning with our lives is revealed to be an illusion, a lie, an obfuscation, I mess it up every time, obfuscation, I said it wrong, an erotic defense mechanism involved in death repression. Death saturates every aspect of our personhood. And so the point I'm trying to make, we could spend a long time talking about that. The, the reality is uh, that I do think that the writer of Hebrews is addressing something real here. Even when we don't recognize it, even when we try to avoid it, that death and its reality is always there. It's always there and it's affecting the way that we engage life and move forward in, in this world. And that it brings about, maybe it's not explicit fear of death, though that is happening more and more with COVID and with mass shootings and all of these things that, that we, uh, the threat of nuclear war, all of these things are building in us fear. And you open up your phone and, and you look at the news and every headline just about is gonna drive you to fear. And the, the truth is that that ultimately comes because anything that we put our hope in, for any one of those things that might be happening, it is ultimately going to fail in the face of death. And so maybe we should be asking ourselves, what are the ways that fear invades our lives? That we have death anxiety, even if we don't recognize it as that. I mean, does the, coming, the potential of the coming recession drive fear into your heart? Does the potential of a broken relationship give you fear, or the loss of, of a relationship give you fear? Does the loss of meaning and even understanding what it is to be in this world, some existential struggle that you're having, does that give you fear? Is, as kids are encouraged to define yourself and come up with your own identity separate from everything else that everybody is saying except for the people that really matter, uh, you know, you have to define yourself. That puts on a lot of pressure. Does that build fear or anxiety within you. And we could go on and on about the fears that we have. And, and what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is that Jesus is dealing with those fears. He's answering it because he's saying, I've conquered death and I'm bringing hope. And this is what we desire. There's gonna be, end up being some overlap in uh, the Sunday school, which I really encourage uh, you to come to um, in, on future Sundays, but we're talking about 
uh, on some levels, heaven, and even defining what that is. This ultimate design for perfection, for the righteousness of, of God, making all things right, and that's the promise of Scripture. And this morning, Dan gave us this quote from C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. It says, there, there's been times when I think that we do not desire heaven. That is that perfection, the new creation, all things made right. But more often, I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts, we have ever desired anything else. And, and what he's saying there, this idea of heaven is actually a world where, where death does not come in and destroy, where death does not affect that world. It is a, a new creation in perfection where death is done away with. And what we find here in this passage is a promise that that's exactly what Jesus has done. He has done away with death. That is what the resurrection brings. And so we're invited, as we saw last week, but you could look back just a few verses, just before what uh, was read this morning, in verse 1, a call for us to pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. A call in verse 3, to not neglect such a great salvation. That there is this invitation to to learn more about who Jesus is as the champion, this cosmic warrior who is at work for us, driving out any fear that we have ultimately. Perfect love casts out fear, 1 John 4, 18. And this is what the work of Jesus does. His sacrificial suffering does for us is that casts out fear. Now, just a little bit of a side note here, a qualification. The, the reality is I'm not saying just believe in Jesus and trust in Jesus and everything will be fine and you won't have anxiety. The, the reality is we are, and we talked about this in the Proverbs, we are physical beings and our physical, mental, spiritual, emotional selves are all wrapped up together. So I'm not saying there aren't times when a counselor and even medication is, is helpful uh, for anxieties that we deal with. But there is this truth, this promise that Jesus is ultimately dealing with the things that bring us anxiety. And there is hope offered here. This is, this is a significant part of the story. And that ultimately, that none of that will be necessary. Because all things will be made right with the final resurrection. Now, this is the picture of Jesus as, as the champion, the broad champion at work in the world. The cosmic warrior who is fighting the battle of good versus evil. And that is clearly the story of scripture. But the encouraging thing for us is that not only is he that great and mighty champion, he is our champion, yours and mine. He becomes like us. He's made like his brothers, verse 17, in every respect. This is all this picture of the, the incarnation. Holy God becoming a man. Holy God, holy man, fully. That, I use the word holy to describe his perfection first, and then he is fully God, fully man, so that he can accomplish this salvation, that, that vocation that we were called to, to have dominion over the earth that we didn't live up to, he is going to do it and has done it. This sacrifice that he made for a little while being made lower than the angels, we see that both in verse 7, and, uh, and then we see it in verse 9 in specific reference to Jesus, which is all the greater, as we talked about last week, that Jesus is greater than 
the angels. He's better than the angels, and yet he humbled himself to be for a little while lower than the angels in order to suffer and die. That is his love for us. That perfect love that casts out fear comes through his sacrifice. And there, there are ways in which we'll see moving forward why uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us more and more of why that was necessary. And certainly the original hearers and readers of this would have understood more because they, had, they were very familiar with Leviticus and the Old Testament law and the, the need for sacrifice to be made. Uh, and, and we sometimes need to be reminded of those things to understand the context, the culture in which Jesus created and entered into. But he became like us. So that in verse 11, we see he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, that is he sanctifies, he sanctifies, we're sanctified, all have one source. That source is God, that is the creator. So that he is not ashamed to call us brothers. And and if we read through the scriptures and we see all the ways in which we fail to live up to the vocation that he's called us to, there, there, we can argue that there'd be reason for him to be ashamed, but he's not. He becomes like us and, and recognizes the beauty of those created in the image of God, and he is not ashamed, and he does call us his brothers, and he, he, he draws us into worship with him. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. This, again, this picture of him in brotherhood with us, with you and with me, leading us in worship in that way, forgiving our sins and covering our brokenness, verse 17. Therefore, he has made, he had been made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become the merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is a word that we use all the time. And uh, we all know what it means, uh, propitiation. It's this idea of forgiving and covering sin. So it's, it's not only the forgiving of sin, but it is the, the covering and protecting from the consequences of sin that is the wrath of God. This is this beautiful picture of his provision for you and for me. Not just this cosmic warrior out there separate from us, but one who has become like us and dealt with us and our own brokenness particularly, so that he cares about us as brothers and sisters, so that even beyond that, he is able to help us in our temptation, verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We're going to see, again, more of this as Hebrews goes on. But he's become like us. He understands even our temptation. It's not just this one thing that was happened. Forgiveness of sin was offered. He is there with us in the midst of our temptation, offering us hope from that ultimate champion, offering it for you and for me. It's a beautiful picture of his work in our lives. He's that champion who comes alongside us. So if we think about you know, we, we, uh, maybe if you've been in Indianapolis long enough, uh, one of the champions of Indianapolis, uh, Peyton Manning, the house that Peyton built just down the street, there's a statue of him out there. Uh, he, he won a Super Bowl, but this is football. Um, he played football uh, for the Colts, uh, did fairly well. So some people say, oh, you know, he's, he's our champion. But, but he's not somebody you know. 
right? Imagine like the story that you would tell just having a meal with, with Peyton Manning. You would tell that story, right? But if he were your friend, or even beyond that, if he championed you to other people, what, what's your, what's your uh, job? What, what do you do, right? Uh, if you wanted to uh, do better in your job and grow in that place, and alongside you comes Peyton Manning championing you in your uh, job, right? That's the, actually the kind of champion that we have here. It's not just one that's kind of out there winning for the team, the big thing. It's he comes alongside us and he champions us in our lives. It's this picture of sanctification that we saw back in uh, verse 11, sorry, in verse 11, that he sanctifies us. He makes us more holy like Jesus. He's, he's alongside us, with us, our champion. And so we can find Incredible hope there, that he is working for us personally. When we make mistakes, and we'll continue to make mistakes, and we'll continue to fail, we, we, we want, we will not focus on him as we should and think he is better. We'll turn to other things, and yet he is there offering forgiveness, offering hope, offering himself to champion us. May we find hope there, because we know that it comes in his power, the one who has power over death itself. Let's pray.